Good morning, church family. We hope that you are doing well. We're sorry that uh, we didn't have a chance to gather together, um, but we hope that you're enjoying the snow and we are thankful that we have uh, this means to gather together and to hear God's word. Uh, we are continuing our preaching series through the book of 1 Peter. This is our second to last sermon uh, in the book. So I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. We'll be in chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. God's word says this, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we ask as we gather to get today uh, in our homes and hear your word uh, that you would meet us in this time, that you would pour out your spirit on each one who is listening. Father, we look forward to next Sunday when we can gather together again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what does it mean to be great? We live in a culture that values greatness, that values being the best and breaking records. We have phrases that we use to describe greatness, phrases like epic and stat that and the goat, the greatest of all time. If there's one man who captures what our culture values about greatness, that man would be Tom Brady. Maybe you like him, maybe you hate him, but Tom Brady carries the title, the goat. Despite losing last Sunday's playoff game, Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time. He holds nearly every major quarterback record. Records for passing yards, completions, touchdown passes, games started, Pro Bowl selections. Tom Brady has never had a losing season. He's the NFL leader in career quarterback wins, Super Bowl MVP awards, as well as the only Super Bowl MVP for two different teams. And not to mention, he has won seven of the ten Super Bowls that he has played in. It's hard to compete with Tom Brady's greatness on the football field. But how does God think about greatness? Is God impressed with stats and records and championship titles? Does he value achievement? How would God define what it means to be the GOAT? When Jesus spoke to his disciples about what it means to be the greatest after they were arguing together about which one of them was the GOAT, he spoke to them in Mark 9.35 and he said, If anyone would be first or if anyone would be great, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus defines greatness as humility. In his book, Humility, True Greatness, 
Pastor C.J. Mahaney says this, As sinfully and culturally defined, pursuing greatness looks like this. Individuals motivated by self-interest, self-indulgence, and a false sense of self-sufficiency pursue selfish ambition for the purpose of self-glorification. Contrast that with the pursuit of true greatness as biblically defined, serving others for the glory of God. This is the genuine expression of humility. This is true greatness as the Savior defined it. In our passage today, Peter wants to highlight for us the necessity of greatness as God defines it through the pursuit of humility in our relationship with him and in our relationships with one another. And what we will find is that as we walk in humility, we experience, experience three very real promises from God. The promise of his grace, the promise that he will lift us up, and the promise that he cares for us. But before we get into this discussion on humility, Peter begins this section with some advice to those who are younger. He says in verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. That word, likewise, it clues us in that Peter is continuing his discussion from the previous verses that Dan preached on last week about elders in the church. We heard that elders are men who are called to shepherd or to pastor the church, that they are to exercise oversight willingly and eagerly as God would have them. Pastors are to be servant leaders. And now Peter calls out those who are younger and how they respond to this type of leadership. He says they are to submit themselves to the elders. But why would Peter, why would he single out the, the younger members of the church? Well, Peter knew that those who are younger, they can, they can t- tend to struggle with authority. If you're listening today and, and you're young, then you probably know this temptation to distrust or, or not like authority. When you're young, you're under a lot of different authority. The authority of your parents, your teacher, your coach, your principal, maybe a boss, and the authority of your pastors. And those who are young can be tempted to resist authority, to distrust it, or even to mock it. So if you are young, how do you think about the authority in your life? Do you think about the authority in your life, maybe your, your parents or your teacher or your pastor, and are your thoughts about them thankful or critical? Have you ever been with a, a group of friends who are, are talking and then one person starts to mock a teacher or maybe talk about a stupid rule their parents came up with or maybe even say that, you know, pastors, they're just, they're fakes and, and don't trust them. When you think of the authority in your life, do you tend to be more aware of the ways that God uses them for your good or the ways that you 
disagree with their decisions. Whatever comes to mind with those questions, it it may reveal that you're struggling more than you thought with submitting to the authority that God has in your life. As we've gone through this letter, we've seen that submitting to God-given authority is a big deal for Peter. In chapter 2, he called us to submit to the God-given authority of government. In chapter 3, he talked how wives are to submit to the authority of their husbands. And now here in our passage, the younger are called to submit to the authority of the elders. But when Peter tells the younger members of the church to submit to the elders, it's, it's not as though they are the only ones that are called to submit to godly leadership. We read in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. That verse is not just directed to the younger members of the church. That is directed to all of us. So as Peter writes, he's reminding those who are younger and in turn all of us that we're called to submit to our pastors. That means that that we should have a willingness to accept the direction that they lay out. It doesn't mean we're always going to agree on everything and it's not as though we just have this blind submission and anything goes. But it means that we should begin with a desire to support instead of a desire to question. It also means that we don't resist initiative, but we willingly participate. It means that our public talk about our leaders should match our private talk about our leaders. It means that when we have a question, a complaint, a concern, we bring it to our pastors instead of grumbling or complaining to someone else. And I am so thankful for the way that Green Tree does this. I've been in this church since I was a little boy and I've been on staff for over 15 years and it has been very rare to encounter someone in this church who was unwilling to submit to the elders. Not to say that sometimes people don't question or, or disagree with directions and decisions, but, but this church, Green Tree, you come with a spirit of unity and humility when you have a question or a concern. Green Tree, you are a great example of what Peter talks about in this verse. You're also a great example of what he talks about next in the rest of verse 5. In the second half of verse 5, Peter moves from addressing the younger members of the church to addressing all of us. He says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to to the humble. In this verse, there is a command, a reason for the command, and then a promise for following the command. So the command is, clothe yourselves with humility. Now, clothing is usually what you first notice about a person. 
when I get ready on Sunday morning and I walk downstairs, I'm greeted by my fashionable daughters. And usually they, they say one of two things about my outfit. They'll either say, wow, dad, you look nice today. Or they'll look at me and they'll say, dad, what are you wearing? See, my girls, they immediately notice my choice of clothing. And so just as you deliberately pick out your clothes each day, in the same way, humility is to be the clothing that we deliberately put on each morning. Meaning that humility is to be the guiding principle for how we respond to one another in the church. Or as commentator Thomas Schreiner said, humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. And so the command is to clothe yourselves with humility. The reason for this command is because God opposes the proud. Those who are proud, they are opposed by God. And notice Peter doesn't put this in the past tense. He said, he's saying God is actively opposing the proud. Pride, it's any time that we, we think or act or, or say that we're better. That we're better than God and better than others. Pride is when we don't acknowledge that we are creatures that are dependent on God and instead, we try to rule our own lives. So think about your life. What are the situations in your life where you struggle with pride? Pride can look different for all of us. Pride can be a, a simple thought that if you were in charge, you would do it differently. Or pride can be a, a full lashing out at someone's stupidity. Sometimes we can even have a, a false humility. On the outside, we can act humble, but we're just being motivated by pride. I remember in elementary school each day, we had snack time and our, our desks were in rows and I was at the back of one of the rows. And at snack time, the teacher would put the snack on her desk and she would call us up by row to come to her desk and grab our snack. And so I, you know, kindly waited for everyone in, in my row to go and, and I, I kindly waited for the other rows to go. And at the end, I, I didn't have my snack and the teacher noticed that, that I was being kind and, and letting everyone go ahead of me. And, and she said, wow, that, you know, that's great. How about you have two snacks? I thought, wait a minute, wow, I'm, I'm on to something here. And so the next time snack time came around, I, I waited again. And that time uh, they ran out of the snack and the teacher noticed my humility and she went into her special teacher cabinet and she got me the extra special snack. Now I was doing that not because I was being humble. I wasn't doing that to, to care for the other members of my class. I was acting humble on the outside, but inside it was, it was pride. It was just for me. Whatever pride looks like in your life, the motivation is always to lift ourselves up. 
It's always to make ourselves great rather than God or someone else. That's why God hates pride. That's why God actively opposes pride, because it robs him of the greatness only he deserves. Pride, it causes us to ignore God and diminish our need for him each day. Pride, it also brings division into our relationships. And instead of serving others, pride always wants to serve self. And so as we act in pride, we will encounter God's direct opposition. So in this verse, God, God wants to show us the seriousness of pride, how he particularly hates it. And so this command that he gives us to clothe ourselves in humility, it is a loving and merciful warning from God. He is warning us that we don't want to find ourselves actively opposed by him. You know, it's not easy to live a humble life. It seems like everything in our life kind of rises up to resist humility. And that's why the the next phrase in verse 5 is is really good news. While God actively opposes the proud, he promises that as we walk in humility, he will pour out his grace. You see, as we act in humility, we, we open the door to access God's grace, his help. God always wants to bless humble obedience. Kids, think for a minute about your relationship with your parents. It it can be hard to obey. Your, Your parents ask you to do something, maybe clean your room or get started on your homework or unload the dishwasher and 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 you respond mom would you just stop nagging me geez i'll I'll do it when i'm ready i don't know if that happens in your house It, it sometimes happens in mine but kids when you do that does it make things better does life get easier? Do you have peace and joy when you give in to your pride and respond to your parents that way? And the answer is no. Why is that? It's because that is what God opposes. God doesn't bless that type of attitude. But a humble response, obeying without an attitude, that's when God promises to help. That's when he promises to pour out his grace and help you to obey even when it's hard. And when you do that, when you humbly obey, God blesses that. Life goes well and you have peace and joy in that moment. Because in that moment, you've both honored God and your parents through your humility. But it's not just kids, right? Adults, you know if if you're in an argument with your spouse or someone else, and instead of increasing the volume of your voice, you humbly lower your voice and lower the tension and try to listen instead of speaking, 
try to understand where is the other person coming from, it's in that moment that God shows up. There is help and grace for that moment. Humility brings peace into our relationships. But humility is more than how we treat others. Humility is rooted in the recognition of who we are before God. Pride says, I have no need for God. Humility says, without God, I am nothing. Edmund Clowney in his commentator on 1 Peter says this, The humility of those who serve Christ is not merely the absence of pride or the awareness of limitations. Christian humility is realism that recognizes grace. The Christian knows that he did not make himself or save himself. His humility springs from total dependence on the grace of God. What Ed Clowney is telling us is that to live out this command to humble ourselves, it first begins with our humility before God. Humility is remembering that we are creatures dependent on our Creator and sinners dependent on our Savior. Peter is speaking of a humility that turns to God as the source of life and hope and strength and salvation. And so in verse 6, Peter directs us to that source. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. The audience of, of Peter's letter, they would have heard that phrase, mighty hand of God, and it would made them think back to God's rescue of the people of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. In Exodus 15, Moses and the people, they are celebrating how God rescued them with his mighty hand out of their slavery and bondage in Egypt. And they, they say this, this is one line in the song that they are singing to God. It says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. By his mighty hand, God had saved his people who were unable to save themselves. But this was a, a picture pointing forward to the ultimate salvation that would come through Jesus. The Israelites saw a part of what we now see in full. Just as Israel was enslaved in Egypt and unable to escape, we cannot save ourselves from our pride and sin. We need the mighty hand of God to act for us. But in our pride, we, we have this tendency to diminish how lost and hopeless our condition really is. We need to see again and again that it was impossible for us to free ourselves from our slavery to sin. But... God's mighty hand. God's mighty hand accomplished what was not possible for us. He paid the full price for our freedom. The mighty hand of God put his 
own son to death to rescue us from our pride and from our sin. And so we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God when we see our sinful pride and realize there is only one answer. There is only one solution and God has provided that through Jesus. And so we humbly turn to God, turning from our sin and asking for his cleansing forgiveness. Those who have turned to God have humbled themselves. They have done what is essential for a saving relationship with him. But we don't stop turning to God. We don't stop humbling ourselves before him. This is a a daily process. We never outgrow our need for this. Think of think of Sunday morning. You wake up on Sunday morning and and you have a lot of options. Probably not today because it's so cold and snowy. Today you should just after watching this binge watch your favorite show or or watch some NFL playoff games but but maybe picture a, a summer sunday morning in july if it was warmer out on a nice sunday in july you have a lot of options you could go out to brunch you could go golfing you could go to the beach but each sunday when you choose to attend church, you're saying, God, I need you. I need your grace. You humbly come and say, God, here I am again, dependent on you. And because you do that, Sunday after Sunday, you come and humble yourself. You experience God's grace. You experience God's grace in the Sunday gathering as you sing together with everyone else. You experience God's grace as we pray together as a church family. You experience God's grace as his word is preached. You experience God's grace as you have conversations with the rest of your church family and you hear how their week went and you find ways that you can pray for them and you hear ways that they are encouraging you. You see, you can't get that kind of grace from a round of gospel golf or from going to the beach. See, that kind of grace comes through the humility of our dependence on God. And it's not just Sunday morning, it's it's every day as we pray and confess sin and study the Bible together and read the Bible on our own and serve others in many, many different ways. As we humble ourselves before God, we experience our grace, His grace. And in verse 6, we have the, the second promise of this passage. Not only God, does God promise to give grace to the humble, He also promises to lift them up. Peter tells us this at the end of verse 6. He says, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. And so the promise is, as we humble ourselves, God will lift us up. Now in this verse, Peter uses the phrase, 
at the proper time. But he doesn't clarify when this time is. When will God lift us up? We could read this as, you know, the time that God thinks is best. But from the context of the letter, Peter has been pointing his readers to the end of time. In chapter 1, verse 5, he speaks of a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Just a few verses down in verse 13, he says, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand. You see, Peter is writing to people that are experiencing suffering and persecution. And in that trial, in the suffering, in the persecution, they, have, they may have been tempted to think that God was absent. To think that God didn't care about them. So as Peter is writing his letter, he, he wants to direct their thoughts to the hope of their salvation. To the end of time when Christ would return. To the time when God would exalt those who had humbly Put their faith in him. Daniel Doriani, in his commentary on 1 Peter, he, he talks about this promise and he says this. This was an essential promise as Peter's churches endured the threat of harm. It remains a strong promise for Jesus' people in every nation as they face hostility. We can respond to hardships sorrows and delay in God's action in one of two ways. We can grumble and accuse or we can trust him. In suffering, in pain, in loss, we can trust that God will lift us up. His perfect timing, it may be today. It may be tomorrow, or it may be when Christ returns. But you may be thinking, okay, well, you know, God makes this promise, but, but where's the proof? I mean, how can we trust that God will lift us up? We can trust that God will lift us up because he already has in the gospel. The mighty hand that will lift us up is the mighty hand that was nailed to the cross for our sin. The mighty hand that will lift us up is the mighty hand that lay dead in the grave and the mighty hand that rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. So if you are listening today and you are finding it hard to trust God, Look to what he has done to lift you up from your sin. Look how he has set his love on you through Jesus. You were low. You had no hope. You could do nothing. In your sin, your destiny was hell apart from God. And he made a way to lift you up. And so if you are struggling to trust God, humble yourself before him. Remind yourself again how he has demonstrated his love and faithfulness in sending Jesus to die for you. Consider 
He has not failed in his promise to save you from your sin, and he will not fail in his promise to lift you up in the proper time. Finally, in verse 7, Peter wants to highlight for us one of the main ways we humble ourselves before God. He says in verse 7, we do this by casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Do you ever struggle with anxiety, with worry or fear? I think over the past couple years, most of us have experienced some sort of pandemic-related anxiety. But maybe you're a student and you're anxious about school. Maybe you have social anxiety. Going out in public is just hard for you. Maybe there's decisions that you have to make and, and you're anxious about them. We can be hesitant to share our anxieties with people. What will they think? Can we, can we trust them? Will they see us as, as weak? So instead of, of sharing our anxieties, we, we hold them in. We, we bottle them up. We, we, we try to cope with them. I don't know um, how I come across to people. I've heard people say that I'm, I'm calm under pressure. I'm able to think clearly uh, when there's a decision to be made. But I don't really think of myself in that way. Often I'm fearful and full of anxiety. I tend to worry uh, too much about what people think of me and the decisions that I make. I, I worry about how things are going to go and how people will react. I, I can be paralyzed at time by decisions, feeling anxious that you know maybe I'm going to make the wrong decision. And so for me, anxiety is something that's, that's often very close. I remember years ago there was a situation in my life um, and the situation was just one of those situations that just kept getting worse. I wasn't sure what to do. I, I tried all kinds of different things to, to fix the problem. Nothing worked, and it was just getting harder and, and more painful. And so for months, I was, I was riddled with anxiety about this problem. I had literal knots in my stomach that, that wouldn't go away. Many nights I would, would toss and turn in bed. I'd play the situation over and over in my head, trying to figure out a way that I could fix it, maybe trying to do this or that. But it only got worse, and my anxiety continued to grow. And then I read an article, and I, I don't remember uh, who wrote the article or even where I got it from, but the article was about anxiety and sleeplessness. And the author talked about how we can, we can lose sleep at night by anxiously meditating on our problems night after night instead of casting our anxieties on the Lord. The author recommended a practice of, of reading a psalm each night instead of fixating on our problems as we head off to bed. So I, I tried this. And after a few weeks, I found that this practice was a help to me. Each night as I focused on a psalm, what I was actually doing was casting my anxieties on the Lord. I was thinking about His truth. And as I thought about His word, He 
was caring for me. And you know what? The, the situation, it didn't improve right away. But God used this difficult situation to humble me. He helped me to learn in those nights of reading his word to cast my anxieties on him. And he was faithful to care for me. This is the third promise of our passage. Peter tells us as we cast our anxieties on God, he cares for us. Anxiety at its root is pride. It's saying, I can handle this on my own. I'm going to fix it by worrying. But casting our anxieties on the Lord, it displays humility. It takes humility to say, I can't do this myself. I'm not coping with this well. I'm anxious and troubled. God, will you help me? When we do that, when we cast our anxieties on him, we're humbling ourselves before him. We're humbling ourselves before the one who has the power to help us with our anxiety and the care that we need in our anxiety. As we obey this command to humble ourselves and cast our anxieties on him, we experience this promise. We experience his care for us. So church, let's be a people that walks in the greatness of humility. Let's do that, walking humbly before God and before one another. And let's trust in these promises. Let's trust in this promise for God's gracious help. Let's trust in the promise that His mighty hand will lift us up. And in the promise that as we cast our anxieties on him, he will care for us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the time that we've had together today. We thank you for these verses that Peter wrote for us. We ask that as we meditate on them in the hours and days ahead, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and lives. Father, we, we want to be a humble people. We want to be a people that are humble before you and humble before one another. And so we ask for what you promise in this passage as we walk in humility, that you would give us grace. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.